Hello, it's Pete again, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. What do people talk about on this podcast, eh? Well, they talk about education, and technology, and creativity, and innovation, and even entrepreneurship. Well, tonight's guest has got all of those things in abundance. Welcome, Sean Shepard. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, it's really good to meet you, Sean Shepherd. And uh, if I could just uh, do a very brief introduction to you, Sean, which I don't think does you justice, but you're the founder of GrowthX and GrowthX Academy, and uh, you're globally recognized as a thought leader in sales and marketing and innovation and education. So very closely aligned with what we're doing on this podcast. So there's so many things that I want to ask you. Let's start with some pleasantries. How are you doing today? I'm lovely, and you? Yeah, well, I'm lovely as well, arguably. But um, but you're <laughs> slightly more lovely because you've got this wonderful um, sunshine in the background, whereas it's getting a bit dark in the UK now. And you've been to yeah, well, to say people Robbie. always ask me if this is a virtual background, and I keep explaining to them it's not. It's it's my actual garden. So I live in a lovely place in California, and I'm I'm very blessed. It's a thing of beauty. It really is. So how 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 far does that go on for at the back? Is is that sort of uh, quite a while? I mean, if you really want to know, watch this. Yeah, you say. Oh. Um, you can't see this, so he's running into the wilderness, it appears. <laughs> and now he's running back. It's, it's you got to have fun, right? Yeah, it's quite a distance, that. Yeah, so we have a little more, a little more than an acre here, and it's, right. um, it's on top of a hill, and um, it's, uh, it's very secluded, even though we're pretty close to San Francisco. So it's, yeah. like I said, you don't feel like you're anywhere near a city, yet we're only 30 minutes out. Well, it doesn't look urbanized, but um, this is great. This is like a, you know, a cross between an EdTech podcast and Forrest Gump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> run, Forrest, run. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to know that you're keeping fit as well, because uh, that, uh, that was quite a distance that you covered in a very short space of time. <laughs> yeah, the podcast listeners are not going to uh, get that, but the people who watch the video will. Well, I, I accidentally listened to some uh, Keep Fit on the radio yesterday. So, sorry, this morning I was driving my son to work and um, I could hear on Five Live in the UK. So there's Five Live, is a sports station, BBC Five Live. And um, they, they had some exercise thing on, on the radio. And I thought, really? Does, does that, is that a thing now? Exercise on the radio? <laughs> could be. Yeah. I mean, Peloton has taken America by storm. Oh, um, yes. Especially during COVID. People are posting all the time about they're uh, they're riding with virtual coaches in real time right okay yeah well there you another go great of ed, another great use of technology for education right and training absolutely and that leads us uh, beautifully that's very very uh, very good segue there you did that so well <laughs> <laughs> into what we're, we we want to talk about now what leaps out at me if it's okay with you sean is uh, one big question we'll start one initial big question and that is how can technology help people learn faster yeah, I think the, 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 in a myriad of ways, um, I think uh, reach is the first and most important thing that technology enables, right? We can touch everyone now, almost everyone, mm -hmm. or we have the capacity now to, um, to teach everyone um, who wants to learn um, uh, anywhere in the world uh, mm -hmm. to a certain degree. Um, so I think the, the capacity to reach people based on the internet has, has changed and transformed education forever. And I think for, for the better, mm. um, because you can get access to choices and ideas and thoughts and methodologies and ways 
uh, and means of learning uh, that you didn't previously have any access to. Mm. Uh, so, you know, at the academy, we have a global student body and there are people all over the world in the farthest reaches that aren't getting access to the Silicon Valley mindset and the tech mindset and the growth mindset and those things where they live, but they get it from us. So I think reach is, is, is certainly the first and most important one. And then I think, um, uh, uh, I think the next great interesting thing is obviously AR and VR. Um, and the ability for us to have a, as near um, uh, a, at least a virtual immersive uh, learning experience uh, or the opportunity for that in ways that didn't exist before um, as well. And then I think the third one probably is the ability, the ability to provide competency-based assessments through technology um, in ways that probably weren't possible before. Um, you know, once you, once someone figures out in a manual way, an efficient way of assessing, you know, an individual's learning, uh, and their competency, proficiency, et cetera, um, there is, uh, there's, it's not hard to build technology in, in particular, write code and algorithms to, to make that more repeatable and predictable and scalable. Um, and ultimately I think the final one is the, Technology creates the opportunity for individualized learning at scale. Um, and I'm a big fan of Dr. John Medina uh, out of the University of Washington, a neuroscientist who wrote, wrote the book Brain Rules. If you're not familiar with it, your audience isn't, I strongly suggest you read it and learn about it. His work, as well as the work of people like Dr. David Eagleman at Baylor University, um, and some others are around um, uh, frequency uh, MRIs. And now because of frequency MRI, fMRI, we have the ability to track in, in more real time how the brain functions, how it reacts and responds to different stimuli. And, and, it, and what we've learned a lot from that is how receptors are created in the brain based on every new experience and how every individual's receptors um, connect to different parts of the brain for a whole host of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, you can start to really understand someone's learning style and how to be most effective in delivering education to them um, and opportunities to learn in a way that's very different. I personally was a terrible student growing up um, for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is I have a real problem with authority. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but many of the others have to do with my learning style. Um, and you know, today we call this stuff ADHD and ADD and all these, we give all these names to it, but I couldn't sit still. Mm. Um, so I'm a physical learner, mm -hmm. uh, and John Medina talks a lot about this in terms of oxygen to the brain creates greater, a greater capacity to learn. Mm. Um, also laughing, uh, the data supports that, uh, the brain is never more open and receptive to learning and new experiences than it is when it is at, when you are laughing. Uh, and there's real joy in, in your emotional state. And these are the kinds of things that it took me later in life to learn and why I was so passionate and ardent about changing the way we deliver, changing the way we teach and educate and, and, and applying it to people in a way where they learn best. And so I think the future, I'm talking, we're still probably 
decades away from this, but the ability to quickly assess, let's call it a brain scan. It may not be that, it may not look like that, but to be able to scan one's brain quickly and then determine the best way to deliver them uh, educational experiences and opportunities, it's customized to that individual. And I think that's the most exciting um, way that, that technology can contribute mm. uh, to the personal development of a, of a student. This is so exciting, and I was talking to a guy about biometrics, a guy called Ryan Hughes, a couple of weeks back, and it's, it, the the uninitiated might be thinking, well, why is it that things happen so quickly in the tech world, but when it comes to things like this, people are talking about you know twenty, thirty years time. That I mean, that's obviously speaks to me about the, the barriers that you, that you will be encountering along the way. So, can we unpack a, a few of those? Yeah, I mean, number one, we know we still know the, the biggest one is still what, what we truly do and do not understand about the human brain. Um, it's the least, mo it's the least understood part of of a, of, of a human's biophysiology, um, and that's where the most opportunity is. And as we start to learn more and more about that, we can start to adapt our learning and educational methodologies to towards that. I think that's the number one barrier. So we don't know what we don't know yet about the brain, but every time we learn something new, it changes the whole paradigm, in my view, um, of, uh, of, of how, we, how we can teach and educate people and what we understand about ourselves. I think that's the first and biggest barrier, which is why I, I take a longer view. It could happen much faster. Certainly there are other things like privacy issues, um, access to technology. Um, from a privacy issue perspective, I'm very, let's say, libertine when it comes to just life in general. Um, and I want people to have choice and I want them to have options. And I respect institutions, if you want to call them that. Um, but I also think that everybody should have a right and a choice to plan and learn uh, the way they want, how they want, with who they want. Um, we provide them with... As, I think our responsibility is to provide them with a platform to make those choices and help them help them establish a decision making criteria for themselves mm -hmm. um, that allows them to define and and create their own educational journey and learning path, which again, I'm a big believer in lifelong learning and I don't, I don't think it should ever stop. I think the most successful people and the ones that find the most meaning in life and purpose are the ones that are lifelong learners and are constantly on that on that path. Um, and so, so if you create that environment, then hopefully people can make their own choices. But I think privacy will be an issue, especially when people continue to think about things at the institutional level, you know, one thing for everyone, which I don't think is right. I think the future is, is one thing for one. I think it's one-to-one. -one. And I think you can do one-to-one -one at scale if you leverage the technology that, that exists. There's plenty of AI, there's plenty of machine learning, there's plenty of data out there for us to build algorithms that enable that to happen. But I still think the biggest barriers are what and when we understand the brain, how we can use it safely. I think safety is another big barrier. Um, and then I think, um, and then I think uh, um, uh, privacy is, is another big barrier there. So that's why I can't really put a timeline. Yeah, it's impossible, it. isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. There's a lot. There's a lot of research that suggests a lot of things, but then just like anything, right? How do you manufacture it? How do you scale it um, without 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 uh, well maintaining ethical integrity and not degrading the quality of the experience? Mm. You know, and 
just talking about uh, privacy, or as your wife would say, privacy. Um, yes. what, <laughs> what kind of progress do you think has been made by the likes of, of Facebook? Which, for, for example, what, what the, the way that they handle data is, is quite controversial is, you know, in many ways, isn't it? But uh, can, can you learn from them, in, or are you learning from them in the way that they handle data and, and the privacy issue? Well, I think it's an educational opportunity for the entire world to understand that in the internet age, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And there's a business model reality associated with that. And you don't have to be on it. Um, and, but I also don't like monopolies either. Um, and I think especially in the United States, the antitrust exemption that the big tech has gotten for, too, for, for way too long is, is, is wrong. And it's, it's long overdue to not necessarily break them up, but stop calling them a platform and start calling them what they are which is a publisher. And when you treat Twitter and Google and Facebook, um, LinkedIn, et cetera, and you teach, treat them as what they really are, which is large media organizations and you view them that way, I think everything would be very different. But that's just, that's my general policy view on, on how I think we can continue to leverage these kinds of platforms for good because there's too many nefarious, look, evil's evil, good's good, bad's bad, where it gets played out doesn't really matter. It's just amplifying what we've already known about the good or bad intentions of humanity yeah. and, and those behind it. Um, so I'm not passing judgment on any of them, but I do believe that we should be calling them all publishers. And if we did, then I think they would behave differently and, and more responsibly. But ultimately it's up to the individual, us as humans to recognize that if we're not paying for the product, we are the product. Mm. And so if you choose to go there and you choose to participate in that, you have given up your rights to that, to that information, um, to, to Facebook. Um, and so have they handled it beautifully? No, but I think that's also part of, um, the immaturity of a, of, of a fast growing company. Um, and, uh, and, and, and any kind of behavior that continues to get rewarded is not going to change. I think that's just a basic, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. We were talking about this just before we got on the podcast, right? Yeah. yeah. If you reward bad behavior, guess what you're going to get more of? Mm -hmm. um, if you reward good behavior, hopefully you're going to get more of that, right? And so I think us as a society has to reward the good behavior from the Facebooks and the platforms that are really publishers and then, and then punish the bad behavior if we're going to make any sense of this. Um, I think um, you talked about facial recognition. Um, you know, I have a venture capital fund as well. We have over 143 different portfolio companies and, and facial recognition is, a, is, is one of the fastest growing areas for us. Um, and it's the COVID thing is a big part of that as well. Now it's accelerated it um, because pe people need contactless ways of going through the world conducting commerce, doing business, uh, et cetera. And now they want to take your temperature and they do all these things. And, um, and if you're going to be, again, responsible and you understand that going in, then you have the choice to opt in or out of that experience. You don't have to go get on an airplane. You don't have to uh, go to a certain kind of store if they're taking your facial recognition. You don't have to opt in to that experience. I think that's a personal responsibility um, dynamic that people need to recognize.
And it places you in a position of greater power, does it not? When, when you know, as you described, if, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. If you accept that and go with it, then you don't feel like like a victim. You don't feel as though you're, you're being absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think victimization or just that the, the victim mindset is a very destructive mindset for any human. Um, one of one of the GrowthX Academy mentors is a gentleman by the name of Dr. John McQuaid, uh, who's the head, dean of psychology at the University uh, University of California, San Francisco, and he's also the head of the United States Department of Veteran Affairs PTSD wing in Northern California, and he's a dear friend and a wonderful man, and he taught me something very powerful, and we teach this at the academy because uh, we're really big on personal development. Because I think in, in today's economy, if you develop a person, you develop a professional. So we start there. And he talks about negative self-talk and sabotage and, um, and victimization. And he says, Sean, when you're really hard on yourself, when you're talking negatively to yourself in your own mind, ask yourself, the things you say to yourself in those moments, would you ever say this to another person? And it just struck me immediately. And I was like, absolutely not. I would never talk to another person the way I talk to myself when I'm hard on myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I can be a perfectionist and I can be real. I can get down on myself pretty quickly, right? And I've learned, I've tried through mindfulness, practicing mindfulness, growth mindset over the years to, to, to catch myself in those, in those moments. But I'm just simply bringing that up as, a, as an element of, of adding to what you said about the victim, I, the idea of being a victim. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a big believer in Stoic philosophy of, you know, you can't control the circumstances, but you control how you respond to them. Mm. And that's an individual choice, whether you're a teacher or a student or a parent or just a human. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. So this is, uh, this is very fascinating. I have, to, I have to say, Sean, so thank you so much for, so far. Could we uh, geek out for a little bit? I mean, we're not here to geek out, obviously, but I think you've, you've created so many products that are linked to EdTech that are, that are EdTech products. It'd be good to hear about a couple of those, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, I mean, the Academy, when we started, we started to solve our own problem. We were serial entrepreneurs turned investors, turned frustrated investors because our companies weren't growing. And the reason they weren't growing had more to do with the people and the market factors, not the product and technology factors. And um, institutional education had not been, uh, it hasn't, has, it just flat out hasn't caught up with what the free market uh, is demanding in terms of roles, responsibilities, knowledge, skills, and behaviors. Um, and so we looked around and we couldn't find people teaching what needed to be taught. And um, um, uh, so we decided, all right, well, we're just going to do it ourselves. Um, and as entrepreneurs, that's what we did. And we launched a fully immersive accelerated learning environment that was project-based, uh, an experiential flipped classroom um, to help adults who wanted to work in technology but didn't want to code find ways to contribute and add value. And so we just reverse engineered our curriculum based on what the employers wanted, my peers, um, as a company builder. I've started five companies, I've sold three. And, um, and I just went to those people and said, what do you need right now that you're not getting? Um, and we found out that it was, it was it, in, in three really key areas. Um, I call them market development areas, not product development areas. 
and it was sales, but not it, just generally sales. Um, and I, I can go on a soapbox all day about how we should be teaching sales at a very young age because it's one of the most valuable parts. Nothing happens in commerce and in the world without somebody selling something. Um, uh, the other was digital marketing, modern data-driven marketing techniques because we now have access to data. We can make much better decisions in real time, accelerate, compress the learning feedback loop and flatten the curve, if you will, the learning curve. Um, and then finally was design thinking, uh, user experience design. You know, how do you create an experience like an Apple or an Amazon uh, on every product and, and, and program and service that you deliver to the world? I always say that Amazon became the most valuable company in the world and they don't make anything except all of us satisfied and fulfilled yeah. to some degree, right? And that's their job. And Bezos has said it since day one. His focus is to be completely obsessed with the customer. What does the customer want? And how do they feel about it? And what are they thinking? And how can we deliver that? Um, and as a result, they've built the most valuable company in the open market. Um, and they weren't the first e-commerce company and they weren't the first one to sell books and they weren't the first one to deliver movies online and they weren't well, any of those things that they're doing. Um, but it was all about design thinking principles of creating an experience for people. And now that experience has become a new standard for all of us. And of course, they have a great deal of data on all of us. I mean, is, is that something that um, you think is important as you, as you grow your own companies, just, just how data is a form of equity? Data is the output of activity, right? So, um, yes, I mean, I can go buy a data set on anything, but I'm very big on doing the things that don't scale to scale later. And that means having a fully human experience. Um, and trying to get in and truly understand what someone thinks, what they do, uh, and how they feel about what, you, what they're doing and how you can serve that um, in a way that delivers the right kind of experience and helps everyone before you start going after massive rooms of data. Um, to me, once you have your hands on the data, that's more that you can get a couple things from it, obviously. Number one is insights, actionable insights, right? You've got to take data and you've got to turn it into actionable insights. Um, and that often just starts with constructing a hypothesis around an observation from the data, right? And then testing the hypothesis and iterating, validating, et cetera, learning from it. Um, uh, and then the other is how do we optimize what we're doing uh, with that data? So it creates insights for new opportunities as well as the opportunity to drive more efficiencies or, or improve on any number uh, of things and data science is another program that we're teaching now speaking of that mm -hmm. uh, we have a contract with the united states air force to help them empower their officers in the field with the techniques necessary to create actionable insights of data because they have reams and reams of it without having to go out and hire expensive consultants and take six months or nine months to learn something that if they only knew how to do it themselves they could probably do it in a query um, and I think that's the key is, is, is empowerment, teaching people how to mine data, sift through it, make good decisions about what they see uh, and act on it. Absolutely. And, to, and to know why, why they're doing it and what, what the exactly. ethics are. Well, why is really important. You're absolutely right. Yeah. 
Um, so th th this is the part of the podcast that, which I would call um, difficult questions. I should have a jingle, I think. Where it's, it's a devil's advocate type of question. So uh, imagine there's a kind of a dramatic sound effect. We could imagine one of those. Yeah. Like, duh, duh, duh. And <laughs> this is the difficult question time. So hopefully, please don't run away like Forrest Gump again. When asking yeah. this question. <laughs> I, I, we, we teach a class at, at the academy on how to have difficult conversations. Brilliant. I, 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 I'm lecturing on it again next week to a group of international MBA students. So bring it on. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, you'll be asked many stupid questions quite a lot as well about, about the technologies that you're exploring. So this is partly a stupid question and partly a sort of a devil's advocate type of question. So one of them is about brain-based science. Um, some would argue that this is one of many fads in education that you know, will we'll, we'll pass one, one, day, one day when it's debunked. And the same for AI and VR so these I do you know, apologize in advance that these are that you do, you'll have been asked these so many times and they're partly super no it's fine I love this conversation yeah. yeah so what would what would you say to um, people who, um, who would ask you that kind of thing well the first thing is I'm curious about their motivations for even at, for, for suggesting that it's going to get debunked I mean I don't care if it gets debunked or it doesn't I care about the truth I care about what's going to help people learn more, better, faster, and with the appropriate behaviors, which I think is the thing that's been lost on society since the internet is launched. It's yeah. only getting worse. Um, and, I, and for us, I think about the three buckets are knowledge, skills, and behaviors. What do you need to know? What do you need to be able to do? And then how should you behave? while doing it. And I think the behavior piece is super critical, which is why we're so focused on personal development. If AR VR works best for Pete and, and um, brain-based customization and neuroscience works best for, for Sean to learn and get what he wants, then what's wrong with that? And if neither one does, I don't care. I care about what's in the best interest of helping people get what they want um, and, and, and do that with integrity. Um, yeah. So That's it's interesting. It. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that, you know, the people who are inclined to debunk things or to suggest that things will be debunked, they have their own agenda. But that agenda may be politically motivated, it might be ideological, it might be corporate, it might be laziness. Well, there's a lot of fear there, right? I mean, there's protectionist behavior. I'm an entrepreneur, right? Innovators and entrepreneurs are always the pioneers. You can tell we're pioneers because we have all the arrows in us. We're the ones not afraid to try new things. And we're always met with resistance until it becomes the norm. Um, and that, that's always going to be a thing. So there's this thing called the, um, the, the psychology of the, uh, of the technology adoption learning curve. So Jeffrey Moore out here in Silicon Valley wrote this book called Crossing the Chasm in the, the first edition of it, I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's based on human research about the psychology of how humans react and respond to risk. And it actually comes out of a farm study that was conducted in the 1950s. So it's really about humanity's ability and to, to accept change and or react and respond to risk. And he breaks it into five communities. There's innovators, early adopters, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, what we call the majority. Um, inside the majority, there's early and late. And then there's skeptics and laggards. Those are your five communities. And it looks like a normal distribution curve. 60% of us are, are called the mainstream. We're the majority. Um, 10% are, la are laggards are, and 10% are skeptics on the, on the far right side of the distribution curve. And on the far left, you've got um, 
your innovators and early adopters. And innovators make up around 10% and early adopters make up around 10%, roughly. Um, and it has to do with the individual psychology of a human and what kind of risks they're willing to take on. And so when you hear questions like that about debunking this or debunking that, I hear skeptics, I hear laggards, and I hear late majority. Um, early majority has to, has to get referenceability or, or proof from other people they respect in the early majority to even try something. It's the innovators that will try anything and take the risk. And it's the early adopters who know how to apply that strategically somewhere in their world to gain real value and a genuine return. Those are the people that propel you and propel the world. They work with innovators and they take that innovative idea and they apply it somehow. Mm -hmm. That's why I call the age we live in now the age of applied technology, mm -hmm. where it's never been easier or cheaper to get products built and launched. But it's also never been more difficult to get traction for them over time because there's so much noise. And when you talk about ed tech, um, you know, there's just every day there's something, some new application in around education because it's a huge market, right? I mean, healthcare and education and, and food, right? physical needs are at the top of everyone's list, especially in weird times like now. Um, so there's a lot of smart people going at it. But there's also a lot of institutions that are afraid they're going to be disrupted by it. And frankly, they are. You know, I hate to say this to, to, to some of your wonderful mainstream skeptic and laggard uh, audience, but, you know, if you, don't, if you don't change and adapt to what's going on right now, you're going to be, you're going to lose your relevance. Yeah. And, and I think in the U.S., for example, the higher education, higher institutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, tuition's increased a thousand percent over the last 30 years. Uh, the, the value hasn't changed to the individual, yet now they're saddled with all this debt. Mm. The student loans are the second largest form of consumer debt in America behind real estate. Mm. And at least real estate's asset-based. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and the rules are set up in such a way that even if you file bankruptcy in the United States and try and clear yourself of your debts, you cannot write off student loans. Mm. It's wow. illegal. Okay. Um, so if that's not a monopoly and a cabal, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. And you're coming out with two hundred fifty thousand, three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, uh, and, and you're trying to find a job, and there are no postings. I'm sorry, there are no job postings on LinkedIn saying seeking liberal artist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not. I'm not knocking liberal arts as a as a discipline. I think there's a lot of value in it. But where's the practical application in the world, based on what people are hiring for? Every year I see the same articles come out during graduation time, come April, May, June, where the, all the media is interviewing and the journalists are interviewing all the college presidents and the provosts and the deans of these universities and saying, are your students prepared for the workforce? And nine and 10 say, absolutely. And then you go to the, then they go to the employer side and they ask them the same question and nine and 10 say, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Right, and there's a gap there. And when we talked about rewarding behavior earlier, we continue to reward uh, status quo behavior mm -hmm. in, in institutional education in, in this country mm -hmm. um, by raising tuition, creating tenure, paying these people more and more money, let, and putting that leverage back on the child and the child's family. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I frankly think it's wrong, and I think it's gone too far, and I think there's going to be um, a, a significant correction 
in, in the education market over here and maybe around the world because it's getting, technology is creating an easier, faster, cheaper, uh, more, more effective way of delivering learning and, and education to some degree. You're not mm. going to get the in-person experience you need, but I think there's some blended models that are working really well. Live mm. online with, with once a week coming into a physical location, but you can live within 50 miles of a, of, of a, of a campus and not have to be there every day. You know, the human connection will always need to be there. Yeah. But I think there's some really smart models that are, that are being created around that. I know at the Academy, we have locations across the globe, but we have learners from everywhere and they're all interconnected with each other and they can all leverage each other. They can all network together and they can all help each other. Yeah. And I think that's part of the future of what, what's coming. And I think ultimately you're going to have maybe 25 or 30 elite institutions in the United States that will maintain their status, not because of the quality of the education, but because of the quality of their community mm. and what opportunities people get access to by being a part of that community. That's where the real value is anyway. That's right. Um, and then everything else is going to get completely disrupted. And you do, well, you do mean in the real world as well, though, don't you? This community that um, the universities are going to you know, create and sustain. Um, the, the, the real world is a big part of that. And that's, that's a major challenge, isn't it, really, I think? Because we're already that's, seeing the, the, the virtual stuff happening you know, at pace, aren't we, and at scale. It's, uh, it's yeah. incredible. And, 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 and look, I applaud them all. I think COVID's done a lot to help force everybody into modernizing their delivery systems. Mm. Um, and the technology has been in place for a decade or longer to make this happen. So I'm not surprised people have been able to pivot quickly. Yeah. You know, there's a will, there's a way. The technology has been there, right? We've all known it. Here you and I are on Zoom. You know, web conferences have been around like this for 30 years. Yeah. Um, there's ways to do it. No, it's not perfect, but there are ways to do it. And people are reacting and responding to it quickly. Mm. Um, just subsidizing education through taxpayer dollars to maintain the status quo is not what we should be doing. Mm. I think we need to continue to innovate and create these and just learn best practices from the private market. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if, 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 if if the student or the consumer didn't want it, they wouldn't buy it. And therefore a private market wouldn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the existential crisis thing, isn't it really? You know, everybody's toys are us now, aren't they? Everybody's saying, you know, what are we actually here for? Why, why, why do we exist? How can we function? I'm glad. It's... I think people need to find meaning, right? I think uh, mm. meaning is everything. It's not about happiness. It's about meaning. Meaning is last thing. You know, and I think the meaning of life is to find meaning in your life, mm. you know, what it looks like for you, yeah. and then design a career path around it um, so that you can take care of yourself and those closest to you, and then contribute back in a productive, healthy way. Mm. Wasn't that amazing? Amazing garden, too. But that's all from EdTech Innovators for this week. Please join us next week. Until then, please take care. See you later.